Dear God, blessed is the man, blessed is the woman with vision who fears the Lord. But Rachel has just sung. We want to live among the blessed. They're the radicals. Teach us this morning, oh God, and give us hearts to respond to your teaching. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So how many people are living on the planet right now, at this second? You, it's just a mouth, the answer is just a mouse click away. World, world odometers or world, world-o-meters, that's it. Worldometers, however you pronounce it. There it is. There's our world population at this very second. Can you read that number? Six billion. 897,573,484,5678. That's how many people on the planet right now. Look at how many people have been born this new year. 5 million, 5.5 million babies are now living on this planet. How many are being born right now? Look at that. 195,532. Do you know that the world population goes like this? Four are born every second. Two die every second. The net gain on our planet's population, two every single second. So, looking at those numbers, looking at those numbers, if you are the God of the universe, what do those numbers do to you? You're God. You're looking at those numbers. What's happening inside of you? Are they just an escalating statistic? Are you kidding? Every one of those numbers represents an addition to your family. These are all your children. Look how many children you're getting every single second. If you're God, what are you thinking right now? Are you wringing your hands and just saying, Oh my, what's going to happen? I can't believe these kids are still coming. They're coming into this world. What am I going to do? Are you doing that? If you're God right now and you're looking at those numbers, could you be thinking, Wow, they're here. I wonder if I have a friend on this planet who will find that little baby in Mongolia, who will find that little child in Zimbabwe, who will in the heart of the south side of Chicago be willing to go for me. And when that boy gets old enough to understand life, will tell that kid that there's a God in this universe who has already died for him. And that this God is coming back soon to take him to a home that is a whole lot better than where you're living right now. If you were the God of this universe, what would you be thinking with these numbers that are still escalating? Hey, listen, if you were a radical disciple of Christ, what would you be thinking right now with those numbers? Huh? National Geographic just came out with its... New Year issue. Cover story. Population 7 billion. According to the United Nations Population Division, the word is that our world will reach 7 billion human beings this year. And get this, in your lifetime, if you live 35 years, we will add another billion on this planet. 8 billion people. You say, do I big deal? I mean, who cares what the numbers are? Hey, wait a minute. If this one line that we are about to examine, if this is the life philosophy of a radical, and if God has called you to be a radical, and I'm thinking about 
you in this hour of, of human history, I imagine you have already been called by God to be a radical. If this life, one-line life philosophy is true, these numbers that are climbing faster than we can count have everything to do with you and me. The second radical in our series, the radicals, this generation, this world, this time. Radical number two. Before we go to that provocative line of his, just a brief life sketch. Get this life sketch out of the way and then I want to share that line with you. I can hardly wait for you to see it. Just one line. So his mom and dad are looking over his, this, this, this prunish, boisterous, tiny little face. And they named the baby what he is. He is an answer to prayer. They name him Asked of God. And he grows up with mom and dad. His dad is a Pharisee, by the way. Big, proud Pharisee. His mother's the wife of a Pharisee. He grows up, the three of them, in a Roman province called Cilicia. Hellenized city called Tarsus. And when he runs all over, scampers all over that neighborhood with his little buddies of Tarsus, it just happens because you've got a Hebrew name. You're not going to only have a Hebrew name. You're always going to get two names because the Greco-Roman Empire will not leave its fingerprints off of you. And so he's not only called asked of God, which would be Salos. In the Hebrew, he's given, a, he's given a Greek nickname. He's called Palos. It means little. Mom and dad are watching the boy grow up. They're saying, you know what, honey? If this boy stays in this Hellenized city, he's going to become a Greek. And so they make the decision. Pack him up, ship him off to boarding school. That's what my folks decided, by the way. Get him out of the house. And so with his bags packed, he ends up, little Saul ends up in the holy city, Jerusalem. They have him, because his dad is a Pharisee, they have him sitting at the feet of what scholars believe today was the greatest and perhaps the last, the last of the Pharisees. A rabbi named Gamaliel. Little Saul boy, sleeping in a sleeping bag every night, is sitting at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel. And he is trained by the mind of this brilliant, sacred jurist and theological expert in the law. He's so carefully mentored, by the way, by Gamaliel, that one day young Saul, young Saul will declare, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. By the way, that doesn't mean I'm an American of the Americans. That doesn't mean I'm an Adventist of the Adventist. That means I have the social, theological, religious, geo DNA of a Hebrew. I am the creme de la creme. I am the best of the best. As to the law, like my daddy, I am a Pharisee. Scrupulous adherence to the divine law. As to righteousness from the law, blameless. Zero, not a moral fault or failure. And as to zeal, I killed them. And now, the nemesis, the arch nemesis of young Rabbi Saul. Another Jew, also a Hellenized Jew, with a Hellenized name, Stephanas. Stephanas. The laurel wreath of victory. Arch nemesis. And when we read between the lines, when these two young men 
meet. Both radicals, when they meet, they will never be the same again. Watch this. Open your Bible. We've got to get this part of the life sketch before that radical one-line life philosophy. Acts chapter 6. Open your Bible, please. Acts chapter 6. You didn't bring a Bible, grab the pew Bible in front of you. You have got to track this, this little vignette, this, this mini life sketch. Acts chapter 6. Grab the Pew Bible. It's page 737 in the Pew Bible. I'll be in the New King James Version, which is the same version as the Pew Bible. Two bright, young minds. Iron against iron. They go toe-to-toe one day. You can read it between the lines there. You'll see it. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, Stephanos. And Stephen, full of faith and power. By the way, Stephen's one of the first of the seven deacons. Remember, they, they were having problems with the Hellenists versus the Hebrews and the widows. So they picked seven deacons. Okay, all right, guys, your job is to take care of these. But obviously, when you're a deacon and you're filled with the Spirit, you're not only deacon around the church. You're into the community. And Stephen is into the community. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose... Now, watch out. Hold on. Here it comes. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. These are people who have either bought their freedom. They have been set free by their masters. They once were slaves. They are all Jews. And they are in a synagogue devoted to them. It's called the synagogue of the freedmen. Where do they come from? They're Cyrenians. They're Alexandrians. And those from Cilicia, oh, wait a minute, that's Paul's home state, the Roman province. Those from Cilicia and Asia, that'd be Asia Minor. So there's a synagogue. And Jews from Cilicia would tend to show up in that synagogue. And I am just imagining that is what happens right here. Young Rabbi Saul, also from Cilicia, goes to that synagogue. Who should be up front that day but another young Jew, Hellenized Stephanos. And what happens? Whoa. And they were disputing, tail end of verse 9, and they were disputing with Stephen, verse 10, and they were not... Whoa, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which Stephen spoke. If God ever asked you to say a word for him, if he ever asked you to say a word from him in the dormitory, in your office where you work, over a cafeteria table, in that instant the Holy Spirit says, say a word for me. If you ever say a word for him, trust me. He'll take care of preserving the word of truth you share. You will not, if you speak here, if you speak here, you will not be gainsaid. They'll debate you, but they'll not win the debate. That's exactly what happened to Stephen. Verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Apparently, two young, two young Hebrews... Brilliant young rabbi, brilliant young follower of the dead Jesus of Nazareth. Two young Hebrews meet mind to mind, challenge from the floor, up front, back, challenge, back, challenge, back. Guess who wins? Stephen. He wins. Outmaneuvered, Saul is. Outscriptured. Stinging defeat. But sweet is the revenge. Look at the next line. Then, verse 11, they secretly induced men to say, 
Yo, we have heard him speak, Stephen, speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes. And they brought and they came upon him, seized him and brought him to the council. Drop down to verse 15. He's called before the Sanhedrin. Saul is a member of the Sanhedrin. Bring him on in. And notice verse 15. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at Stephen, saw his face as the face of a what? What does your Bible say? As the face of an angel. Listen. Not to worry. Don't you ever worry. I know God has called you to be a radical. And by the way, radical is not an age demographic. Radical is you. Called by the living Christ. Mark it down. If you ever speak a word for Him, in that moment when you speak, your face will reflect the glory of the glorified Christ. And they looked at Him. And it was as if it were the face of an angel. And the rest is history. Stephen has tried and trumped up charges, summarily stoned outside the city walls, and Saul is there. Watch this. Go to the very end. Magnificent defense, by the way, in chapter 7. Read that some Sabbath afternoon. Magnificent defense. The defense is cut short in verse 57. Acts 7, 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, megalephone, with a megaphone in the Greek. They cried out. They cried out. They stopped their ears, ran at Stephen with one accord. In verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. How sweet the revenge. I lost the debate, but you lost the war. It's over. And he stands there. All in favor of his execution? Say aye. Saul's hand shoots up. Aye. And he stands there watching. And they stone Stephen, verse 59, as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus. This is the dead Jew that he's praying to. Lord Jesus. Receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. By the way, that's the Bible teaching of what happens at death. When you die, you don't go to heaven, you don't go to hell, you go to sleep. The Bible is utterly clear. You just read it for yourself. He fell asleep. Verse 1, chapter 8. Now Saul, as if we didn't already know, now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles, verse 2. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. My God, we have lost a brilliant defender of the faith. What are we going to do? Oh God, what has happened to us? And God Almighty looks down from heaven. I know you lost. I know you lost Stephanos. He has a crown now. He sleeps and I will come for him. I'm going to replace Stephanos with another brilliant mind. Just you watch, God says. Just you watch. Verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women and children, committing them to prison. 
So it was that on a mission to ferret out any followers of this dead Jesus who might have fled followers up to Damascus. The young Pharisee and Rabbi Saul is the head of a posse that is riding into that celebrated ancient city of Damascus. He'll kill them. But it is on the road outside Damascus that proud Saul comes face to face with the risen, ascended, and glorified Christ. Watch. Turn one page. Verse 3. As Paul journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly, a light shone around him from heaven. Luke, this, this story is so critical to the history of Christianity that Luke tells it three times. Once on his own, twice in the lips of Paul. Paul says in chapter 22, by the way, it was at noon. He says in chapter 26, that light was so bright, it was brighter than the noonday sun. Read verse 3 again. And he, Paul, journeyed. He came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. And then he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city. You'll be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing, hearing a voice but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. Three days and three nights. No eating, no drinking, no sleeping, only praying. Brooding over that blinding encounter. And then comes a knock at the door. Somebody steps into Saul's darkness and it turns out to be a radical, a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 17. And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Can you believe that? Brother Saul? The guy came to kill you. Brother Saul? You've got to be radical. I see you. As Rob just mentioned a moment ago, I see you as a part of my family. Brother Saul, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Talking about radical reversal. You've got an insular Pharisee sequestered from the world. And in that instant, suddenly, radical disciple compelled into the world, becoming the greatest missionary in the history of Christianity. Wow. One more member of the radicals. All right, with that life sketch in the background now, we're ready to tackle, to ponder the driving life philosophy captured in a single sentence that compelled Paul, that will compel you and me into the same world 
Oh, by the way, it compelled Paul once he met the glorified Christ. By the way, and this is a very important by the way. It was first imperative that Paul meet personally the glorified Christ. Which being interpreted means that if Christ is calling you to be a radical for Him. Now listen carefully. If He's calling you to be a radical for Him, and I have no reason to believe that He is not, the times are too critical and the need is too great. Every hand on deck. If He's calling you to be a radical, then it means that it is just as imperative for you to meet, to personally meet the same risen, ascended, and glorified Christ. You have to meet Him. You can't become a radical without that personal encounter with the glorified one. Which means that as you go about your daily routine in this new year, all you have to do is be on your own Damascus road. You say, how am I going to meet him? Don't worry about how you're going to meet him. You just be going down your own Damascus road. Scrambling through, quietly moving through your New Year's agenda or noisily depending on your personality style. You're moving through your New Year's agenda. And guess what? He'll meet you. You be willing. You be open. He'll meet you. You won't have to find Him. He will find you. It was on a winter's night, a January night on this campus. And I'm a graduate student years ago. Right here. On a January night that he tracked me down. I didn't have to go looking for him. He came looking for me. And my life has never been the same since. I'm telling you. I promise you. Trust me. If you are open, if you are willing, and if you will pray, that openness. He's got your name already. You're already engraved on the palms of his hands. He already knows who you are. He knows where you live. He'll come to you. You know what happened when he came to Paul? Let me put these words on the screen for you. This is the psyche of three days and three nights of utter darkness. Here's what happened to Paul. Acts of the Apostles. Put it on the screen for you. During those, those, those hours of uninterrupted darkness, as Saul yielded himself fully to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, there's no way the radical Christ is going to come to you, the glorified Christ, without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He's, on, he's already on you. He's already on your track. By the way, you wouldn't be here if He weren't on your track. As Saul yielded himself fully to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, he saw the mistakes of his life and recognized the far-reaching claims of the law of God. He who had been a proud Pharisee, confident that he was justified by his good works, now bowed before God with the humility and simplicity of a little child in that darkness, confessing his own unworthiness and pleading the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. Jesus, when he shows up to, to Paul, is the glorified one, but he's also the crucified one. F.F. F. Bruce, in his stirring, kind of exegetical biography of, of Paul, entitled Paul, the Apostle of the Heart Set Free. F.F. F. Bruce believes, and, and I'm willing to accept that New Testament scholar's suggestion, 
that in that blinding encounter, face to face, because that was a face to face, he saw Christ. In that encounter, the entire will of God for Saul was encapsulated in those moments that seemed to stand still. Calvary, everything, burned into his consciousness. Actually, the apostle says, he saw and pled the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. Now, notice what happened. Saul longed to come into full harmony and communion with the Father and the Son. And in the intensity of, desi- of his desire for pardon and acceptance, it will come upon you when you, meet, when you meet the glorified Christ. It will well up within you. Trust me. You don't have to do it. He'll find you. Just be open and willing. You be praying and he will, he will encounter you. Saul longed to come into full harmony and communion with the Father and the Son. And in the intensity of his desire for pardon and acceptance, he offered up fervent supplications to the throne of grace. Now listen to this. The prayers of the penitent Pharisee were not in vain. The inmost thoughts and emotions of his heart were transformed by divine grace. And his nobler faculties were brought into harmony with the eternal purposes of God. And I love this last line. Christ and his righteousness became to Saul more than the whole world. End quote. When the glorified Christ finds you, and some of you may be only minutes away from that finding, did you catch that? This is what happens. The Holy Spirit comes over you with conviction. You repent of your disobedience. Good God, what have I done? You'll be filled with this intense desire for pardon and acceptance. Your proud heart is transformed into the humility of a child. You discover a new longing to commune with God, to somehow talk to Him. And Christ becomes for you more than the whole world. In fact, I wish you'd write that down right now. There's no point in going to this radical life philosophy. It's just one line long. But if you have not encountered, if you have not met the glorified Christ, there's no point in moving a step further. So would you jot this down? Grab your study guide. You have it in your worship bulletin. Pull it out, please. Grab your study guide. Let's jot these down. Ushers are coming your way. You didn't get a study guide. Hold your hand up. Here they come. Up in the balcony. Overflow as well. Make sure that we have study guides for everybody this morning. You're going to want this particular study guide. By the way, those of you who are watching us on television, we're delighted to have you. Let me give our... Let me, let me, give you our website. You go to this website, you'll get the same study guide. And I'll put it on the screen for you, in fact, right now. You see it on the screen there, www, see it down in the corner, www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website. You're looking for a brand new series called The Radicals. This is part two. The Radicals, this generation, this world, this time. Part two. When you get to part two, it says study guide, click on, you'll have the same study guide. Jot these down. You're watching right now, join us. Jot them down. What are we jotting down? Well, we're jotting down when you meet the radical Christ on your Damascus road. Here's what's going to happen to you. For some of you, this is about to happen. For others, it may take a bit longer. For some, it has already happened. But when you meet him on the Damascus road, whatever your Damascus road is, it doesn't matter to him. Damascus is simply where you're headed when he surprises you and explodes in your heart. Okay, jot this down. When you meet the radical Christ on your Damascus road, you will be convicted by the Holy Spirit. There's no way. There's no way. He, the Holy Spirit, He's the boots on the ground of the kingdom of heaven. He is the one here. You will be convicted. He's the one who's going to open your heart up. He's the one that has known you your entire life. 
knows how you think and breathe. He's the one who will speak. You'll be, you'll be convicted by the Holy Spirit. Number two, you'll be repentant. You'll repent of your disobedience to God and His law. Say, how do I know I'm going to do that? You just watch. It'll happen. You don't have to engender it. This will all be given to you. It's a gift. You will be filled. Jot this down. You'll be filled with an intense desire for pardon and acceptance. I repent. Would you forgive me? And just like that will be that forgiveness. It's the gospel. You'll be filled with an intense desire for pardon and acceptance. Oh, I love this. Your proud heart will be transformed into childlike humility. You know why? Because you're at the end of your rope. You can't, you can't, you can't save yourself. You can't pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Now, in humility, you are, you're bare. Wide open to Him. You'll be filled with childlike humility. Keep writing. You will discover a new longing to commune with the Father and the Son. On that January night when God came down here and tracked me down, I wasn't looking for God. He came looking for me. I'm in the seminary. I should have known better, but I didn't. And He came looking for me. And I'm going to tell you one of the first things He did. I had huge issues of guilt I had to deal with. Once I got past the guilt and received the assurance of His forgiveness, one of the first, the very next thing He did was, boom, start talking to me, boy. Start talking to me. And there grew up, I can't believe this, there actually grew in my heart a desire to commune with Christ and the Father. What happened to Saul happened to me, which means it will happen to any radical that encounters the glorified Christ. That's what's going to happen to you. Don't be afraid of it. Let Him draw you in. You're dealing with the supreme ruler of the universe who's come down to that dormitory room. It was a little Maplewood apartment room for me. Comes down into that little tiny room and He says, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for you. Be open. Be willing. Be praying. And He'll come. I promise you. I promise you. Did I leave one out? Yeah, the last one. Christ in His righteousness will be... Oh, boy. Christ in His righteousness will become more than the whole wide world to you. I don't know why it happens. I don't know how it happens. Something shifts inside of you. And when He does, when He becomes the whole wide world to you, what will become your driving life philosophy? Ah, we're ready for it at last. This one line is your driving life philosophy. Check it out. You say, Dwight, I've, been, I've known Jesus for a long time. Well, this line has been there the whole time. You're finding out about it for the first time? That's okay. Better late than never. Romans chapter 1. Turn to Romans chapter 1. What's the page number? 757. One line. Just one line. Romans chapter 1. Kind of a crazy line. I mean, oh wow, Shoo, this is gonna, this is what's gonna happen to me. Yep, Romans chapter one, verse fourteen. I am a debtor. Paul is writing to the Christians in Rome. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. Now look at that word barbarian. I mean, you you got to be kidding me. Paul wants to reach the barbarians, people that sit on the back porch in the middle of the woods and spit and chew tobacco. He's not talking about. He's not talking about. He's not talking about those kind of barbarians. I'm trying to say the Greeks. Okay, so this is the Greeks. This is the way the Greeks thought. Anybody they had such a 
self-exalted concept of their language. Anybody who cannot speak Greek is a barbaros. That's from whence comes our word barbarian. So if you can't speak Greek, you, my friend, are a barbarian. So what Paul is saying is, I am a debtor both to the Greek-speaking and the non-Greek-speaking world. To the wise who have gone to university and to those who never got to go. I am a debtor intellectually to everybody, geographically to all. I am a debtor. And by the way, those of you that have the NID, mistaken translation here, the word ought to be translated exactly as it reads. It's debtor. The NIV somehow softens it. It says, I'm under obligation. No, it's not about being under obligation. I am a debtor to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and unwise. The big question for us is, what does it mean? If we get this right, we'll know the line. The question is, what does it mean To be in debt to somebody. What is this debt that Paul is describing here? I'm indebted to John R.W. Stott. In his stirring commentary, Romans, it's the title of it on this book, who came up with this illustration, and I want to pass it on to you. Because there are two ways, watch this, there are two ways you can be in debt. Way number one, so I come to you. And I said, man, I'm really, these are really tough financial times for me. Would you mind spotting me $1,000? And you look at me and he says, you know, the boy looks hungry. I think I'll go ahead and do that. And you hand to me an envelope. I said, oh, come on. Are you serious? Yep. You hand to me an envelope. And I open the envelope up. I said, oh, mercy. Look at these. These, these are $100 bills. One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, eight, ten. <laughs> I missed that line. I wish I could have heard it. It sounded good. Ten $100 bills. These are real. And by the way, don't get any ideas, okay? <laughs> we have plain clothes campus security at every, at every exit. And I'm going to step back just a little, just to be sure. Okay, so I have, this is $1,000. Listen, don't get all excited about this. This is two Phillips in your SUV with the price of gas today, so it's not a big deal. I have $1,000, real, live $1,000 right here. So, you have given me, okay, here's the first way you can be in debt. You have given me $1,000. To whom am I in debt? To whom am I in debt? To you. You gave me the $1,000. How do I take care of my debt to you? I have to get the money back, don't I? Until I return the money to you, I am in your debt. True or false? But there's another way. I've never seen this before. There's another way to be in debt. You give me, you give me $1,000 and you tell me to take this $1,000 and to give it to... What's your name? Sylvia. You tell me, this, hey Dwight, this $1,000 is for Sylvia. Would you like to have this? Bless you. Okay. So, the moment you give me this $1,000, and you say, Dwight, this is for Sylvia on the front row. The moment you do that, and I clutch this $1,000 in my hands, 
To whom am I in debt? Help me out now. To whom am I in debt? Am I in debt to you? I am not in debt to you. To whom am I in debt? I am in debt to Sylvia because you said, I have a great gift. I'm giving it to you because I want you to get it to Sylvia for me. How do I discharge this second debt? The only way I discharge this second debt is to give the thousand dollars, as far as I'm going, <laughs> to give, because I have to give this back myself. It's not mine, trust me. I have to, the only way I can discharge the debt is I have to get the thousand dollars into Sylvia's hands. The moment her little hand clutches those ten one hundred dollar bills, I have discharged my debt. I am no longer in debt to her. And that, John R. W. Stott says, is the debtedness that Paul describes. Christ gives me a big gift. And he says, with this gift, you go. And he begins to tell me the names. Go to him. Go to her. Go to them. Give it to them. Right. Until you do, you are in debt to them. The only way you can discharge this debt is to give my gift. I entrust it to you. You give it to them. Does that make sense or what? Read it again, verse 14. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. I am a debtor. Essentially, here's what Paul is saying. Come on. This is a no-brainer. Paul is saying, I am a debtor to the whole world. That's what he's saying. I owe the whole world. How many do you owe? How many do you owe, Paul? Well, about seven billion in 2011. I owe them all. Big G gift was given to me, but I was told you can't keep the gift. You're my radical. You take the gift to everyone on this planet. My, oh my, radical Paul. Radical you, radical me, that's what you do with the big G gift. By the way, Jesus is speaking now to this little community of faith that I belong to. The third millennial church today. You, you people who have been entrusted with the everlasting gospel of the three angels' messages. I didn't give that to you to form little universities and seminaries where you sit around and you discuss it till you're blue in the face. I gave you this to give to them. And if you're keeping this, you are robbing them of their gift from me. Oh, by the way, I'm going to speak on behalf of the Lord Jesus because I can do that as one of His messengers. I'm going to speak on behalf of Paul because he would have wanted me to make this point as well. In the great judgment day, When the neighborhoods of the world are assembled before God and God announces, by the way, this was what I was trying to get to you. There are going to be people who will look back at me and say, hey, 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 wait a minute. You had this gift the whole time you were living next door to me. 
The whole time I roomed across the hall from you in the dormitory, you had this gift and it was supposed to be for me and you never gave it to me? What were you thinking? That's my gift. I'm telling you, Paul doesn't say that, but that's the truth. Jesus said, I gave you this. Not for you. I've already blessed you a thousandfold. I've given you this for them. And you've been keeping it the whole time to yourself. Wow. Let me read the line again. I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. Radical Paul. Radical you. Radical me. I want to share with you some radical quotations that I've scribbled all around the page for Romans 1. You now have them. You may write them. Be my guest around Romans 1.14. It's going to take a couple pages to do it, but that's okay. Let me run them by you. I'm just going to fire them by you. They're all in your study guide. You can spend your Sabbath afternoon writing in the margins of Romans 1. These are lines that have moved me since reading them. Oswald Chambers, the great English writer. In his classic, My Utmost for His Highest. I read it every year. Put the words of Chambers on the screen for you. So long as there is a human being who does not know Jesus Christ, I am his debtor to serve him until he does. That's pretty clear, isn't it? As long as there's a human being that doesn't know Jesus, I am indebted to him. True or false? True. Ellen White. Wrote before Oswald Chambers, making the very same point. May I run these by you? By all that you have known. Oh, isn't this something? By all that you have known of the love of God. By all that you have received of the rich gifts of His grace above the most benighted and degraded soul upon the earth. Are you in debt to that soul to impart these gifts unto Him? Think of the worst person. The, the most bankrupt morally, spiritually, or even economically. The worst person you can think of. The most benighted. Whoever you come up with. You are in debt to her. You are in debt to him. Here's another one. Same author. Romans, she, she quotes Romans 1.14. I am a debtor. And then she says, so also are we. By all that has blessed our life above others. Anybody here blessed? Anybody here blessed more than the inner city of Benton Harbor, 12 miles up the road? Are you blessed more than the inner city of Benton Harbor? Yes, you are. By all the blessings you have more than the inner city. By all that has blessed our life above others, we are placed under obligation to every human being whom we might benefit. End quote. I gave you this thousand for them. One more from her. According to the truth. Isn't this something? Great for, a, great for a campus that has a theological seminary. The only big one in the denomination. This is great for this campus, isn't it? According to the truth that we have received above others. And I see my colleague seminary professor sitting here. According to the truth we have received above others. We are debtors to impart the same to them. Any truth you know in Holy Scripture that somebody else doesn't know, that truth indebts you to that person. Isn't that something? I gave you a thousand. Pass it on to them. I gave you a thousand. Pass it on. 
Once I discover divine truth in this book, then I'm under indebtedness to take that truth to everyone that doesn't know that truth. Going into South Bend in just a few weeks. Nine nights in a row. I want to meet some of our television viewers. Do some more Bible teaching. Why? Because I have something I want to share with you. You do with it what you think best. But I found something that you owe it to yourself to discover and examine for yourself. Ah, but here's, look, you want something radical? This is the most radical of all, and I saved it to last. David Platt. If you haven't read his book, read it. I read it over the holiday. Gift from a friend. Radical is the title of the book. Radical. Taking back your faith from the American dream. You can't, you can't say, it doesn't get any punchier than this. Every saved, and I've written this, by the way, right beside Romans 1.14 in my Bible. Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. End quote. That's pretty good, isn't it? Every saved person this side of heaven. Are you saved? Yes. Are you this side of heaven? Yep. Then you owe the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. Mercy, all seven billion of them. I mean, how could Paul, please, Paul, how could you do this? You can't be, you can't be indebted to everybody. How am I supposed to do You think I can be indebted? I can't reach the whole world. Ah, Platt shoots back another keeper line from his book. Oh, this is a stinger. The logic that says, I can't do everything, so I won't do anything, is straight from hell. I can't do it all. And so I don't do anything. Zero, nada, nothing. I take the gift and I keep it in my pocket. I, I warm the cockles of my heart with this gift. I'm so lucky, aren't I, Jesus? Any logic that says, I can't do everything, so I won't do anything is straight from hell. Bankrupt. Who do you suppose wants you to be sitting on this gift rather than sharing it? Who do you suppose is hoping that's what you'll do with your thousand? Platt's words on the screen for you. We owe Christ to the world, to the least person and to the greatest person, to the richest person and to the poorest person to the best person and to the worst person. We are in debt to the nations. Encompassed with this debt, though, in our contemporary approach to missions, we have subtly taken ourselves out from under the weight of a lost and dying world. We've wrung our hands in pious concern and said, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm just not called to do that. But, he asked, what if the very reason you are breathing right now... How many here are breathing? Breathe. What if the very reason you are breathing right now is because we have been saved for a global mission, the very purpose for which God created us. What do you think God put you on this planet for? Window dressing? I just need a pretty face. He's got enough pretty faces without yours. Why did He put you on this planet? Eat up the... Eat up... The growings of this planet? Survive? No, 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 no. God had a dream for you. Remember those numbers that were flying just a moment ago? You, once upon a time, you were one of them. Big, she's here. Whoa. Big, oh, he came. He had a purpose for you. You're not a statistic. 
You are His strategic method to take your gift to the one who does not have it. Come on, God, just do it yourself and get it over with. No, I'm not doing it myself. Thanks for the suggestion. I want to know. I'll finish it in the end. Don't worry. I want to know. Before you come to my house, if you have my heart, if you have my heart, you come to my home. No heart, no home. Take the gift. Find somebody. Somebody to whom you are in debt. You were created to be radical, my friend. 80 years old, 18, it doesn't matter to God. You were created to be radical and you are being called to claim that purpose and become radical for Christ in this generation. Does that mean I become a foreign missionary? Could be. At my age, maybe. It means that what you have doesn't belong to you. And you are indebted until it's all gone. That's why last week I invited you to join with me in a 31-day prayer. I've been praying it every day, day and night. I typed it up on a little printer, so I stuck it everywhere I am to remind me to pray the prayer. How does the prayer go? Put it on the screen for you. We began it last week. You say, I wasn't here last week. Well, you're here today. For 31 days we're praying this prayer. 24 days for you. Oh God, give me your heart for this lost world. And I will go anywhere in the world you send me. Pray that prayer out loud with me right now, will you please? Oh God, give me your heart for this lost world. And I will go anywhere in the world you send me. 85, 15, doesn't matter. I will go. Give me your heart. You've already given me your gift. Now give me your heart to dispose of this gift to those to whom I am in debt. Night and day. Night and day. For 31 days, pray this prayer. See what God will do. See how He's going to answer you personally. Just like He did Saul. And if you haven't met the risen, ascended, and glorified Christ, who stretched out His arms on Calvary and gave His life to save you, if you have yet to meet the glorified Christ, I cannot say amen to this closing prayer without giving you an opportunity to come to this Christ. He's here. He's already found you. If you have never come to Christ, or it's been a long time since you have walked with the Christ, I want to invite you today to come to Him. Right now. No music. I want to invite you to stand. We'll just all stand together. And while you're standing, if there's anybody here who needs to come to the Lord Jesus Christ, it's the first step in the radical journey.
If there's anybody here who needs to come to the glorified Christ, I'd like to invite you to just slip out of that pew and come here to the front. And I'd like to pray with you. Is there anybody here that needs to come to the glorified Christ? Can't go into a prayer and not make that invitation. You're up in the balcony. You're in overflow. You're here on the main floor. Is there anybody to join this radical and come to the Christ? Anybody? Say, Dwight, I've already come to Christ. Good on you. I'm going to ask you then to bow your head right now and start praying. You don't need to see me. The Holy Spirit is hovering over this room right now. Turns out this is a Damascus road for some people. You can put your head down and pray. Keep praying. Anybody else? You're not coming to me. You're not coming to this church. Somehow the Holy Spirit has communed with your mind over the last few moments. And it seems that He would have you come to the glorified Christ. I wish you'd slip out of that pew. Come here to the front. If you're coming to the glorified Christ for the first time, I have a book I'm going to give you and a little strategy on how to pray. You think Saul planned it? You think Saul planned the Damascus Road? Well, I think today I'll, I'll meet the risen Christ. No, he had no clue it was going to come today. But the risen Christ was tracking him. Tracking him. And when the moment came, he appeared. If the Spirit of Christ is appearing in your mind right now, And He's asking you, I need you to be radical for Me. But you can't be My radical until you come to Me, Christ Jesus. If He's saying that to you right now, I wish you too would come forward. We're not singing a hymn. We're quietly waiting. There are people all around you who are praying for you right now. They don't know it's you that is the heart that's struggling. Shall I, shall I step forward to the radical Christ? They don't know it's you, but they're praying for you. And that's all the Holy Spirit needs to facilitate the clarity with which you hear His voice. It's not my voice. I was on this campus. It was a January, wintry day and night. Caught me by surprise. But I'll tell you this. My life has never been the same since. And I want that for you more than anything in the world. You'll never know that the gift has been entrusted to you until you come to the giver. Don't go out and try to become a great indebtor to others until you've come to the Christ yourself. Of course, it's radical. I mean, you have to do this in front of everybody. 
Now they're praying, but yeah. In front of everybody, Saul is accosted. Lord, what would you have me to do? Say, do I, is this a call to join mission service? No. There will be a time for that call. This is if you have never come to the glorified Christ or it's been years and something inside of you is saying, I must return to Him. This is that. Anybody else from the balcony? From overflow? Anybody else? God bless you. Sing it with me, will you? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. Let's sing that together. risen and ascended and glorified Christ. Soon coming Savior. You who met Paul on his Damascus road. You who have come down into this humble sanctuary and through Your mighty Spirit come to a mind and a heart. O Christ, You who have come to these, who have come forward, my Lord, what would You have us to do? Please, Jesus, for these, Your strong embrace. Oh, if she knew, if he knew the high calling that You are about to extend to him, to her. Not yet. First, the concentration on who You are. The total adequacy of the risen and glorified Christ. Draw near to her. Draw near to Him. Draw near to these. Begin to grow their walk with You. Just as surely as You met them here on this Damascus road, there is a road to which You will send them one day. And they will go for You. O Jesus, all of us who stand, we wish to say we will go for you too wherever in the world you send us. In your mighty name, we go forth together. Amen.